Today we're going to talk about uh, the doctrine of providence, which basically means the way that God governs things in this world to turn out uh, the way that he's decided. Uh, we talked about this in our theology class at church a few weeks ago, but I, uh, I don't record it live, but providence is important enough that I wanted to uh, reteach it here to the, to the camera, to the world. Uh, just so, so it's there, so it's available, and I think uh, uh, this is a really helpful topic for any Christian, no matter who you are. Um, how how does God run things? Does He run things, or does He just let things set things on a course and sort of step back and uh, hope for the best? How does how does this work? How does the Bible show us uh, how God runs and governs uh, the world? Uh, so before we start. There's uh, a few topics, a few. There's a few uh, resources that uh, uh, will be really helpful for you that you can find uh, that are free. So you, you can find them right now with Google or Bing if you decide to go that way. Um, the first is uh, a very uh, a guy who's been dead a long time named Thomas Watson, a British Puritan guy, theologian, pastor wrote a book called uh, Body of Divinity. A lot of guys uh, wrote theology books called Body of Divinity, but Thomas Watson's Body of Divinity, his discussion of providence is really, really good. It's like uh, five pages long, but like everything Watson wrote, it's short and succinct, but very deep, very powerful. And there's a lot of stuff there, a lot in those five pages. So Resources, Thomas Watson's Body of Divinity, lots of scripture references, not a lot of philosophy, a lot of scripture references. The second uh, resource is the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, it's an old confession from Calvinistic Reformed Baptists. Uh, see chapter five. And you can find this online. Just Google uh, 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Chapter five. Uh, there's a bunch of sections about providence, uh, read it, follow the scripture references, right? All those proof texts that are at the bottom. Uh, proof texting isn't always bad. It can be good if it's done right. Follow the scripture references from the London Baptist Confession, chapter five. The next one is from the 1618 Belgic Confession of Faith, article 13. So those three resources will give you a solid foundation about God's providence. Yeah, there's lots of stuff out there. These are very good, tested, true, withstood the test of, of time. Uh, Christian brothers and sisters for a long time have drawn uh, truth and uh, comfort from these and, and, have, and have agreed that these three uh, do a really good job at summarizing what the Bible says about providence. So those three things are good. You can find them for free, cost you nothing, and uh, uh, take a look at them. Um, so let's 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 talk. This is the way we're going to do this. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to uh, lay out the issue. Uh, then I'm going to give you a brief explanation of what providence is. Like I'm just going to lay my cards out on the table and explain what providence is. And then we're going to just look at a bunch of scripture and see whether the scripture, these passages bear out what we uh, the definition that, that we gave. Uh, when you think about anything, you always need to ask. You know, there's a lot of tradition. Tradition's good. There's a confessions and creeds are very good, extremely helpful summaries and uh, expressions of the faith. Uh, the question to always ask is, uh, uh, does scripture bear that out? Does scripture bear this out? Scripture is the, the norming norm, so to speak. Creeds, confessions, good, trustworthy teachers, you know, good guardrails to keep on the right path, but always go back to are these guardrails scriptural? So 
I'll tell you what providence is, and then we'll look at some scriptures so we can you know, see it, so to speak. So like I said before, what on earth is uh, providence? Providence is God governing the world, governing reality to make things turn out the way he decided. I can give you a more nerdy definition, but but that's it. Uh, there it is. Uh, God governing the world, creation, his creation, uh, to turn the, uh, so things turn out the way that he decided. Now, among Bible-believing Christians, there's a whole lot of liberal revisionist craziness that you can find. Uh, I'll leave that to the side. Um, among Bible-believing Christians, you'll find two tendencies when it comes to providence, how God runs the world. And as a caveat, whenever the, the whenever this topic comes up, what it usually ends up with is you know some discussion of how God rescue, how God saves people. Um, so, well, I might use that for some examples. Um, but um, you have two tendencies among Bible-believing Christians when you think about providence. Option one is you have people who like to maximize our free will, uh, where God is sort of a divine chess master who responds to what we do. So you have a God who's not not really deterministic. You know, he doesn't really decide what happens because these people don't want to give the impression that we're mindless puppets. So they like to they like to Maybe they'll, of course, some they might say that God is in charge, but they really focus a lot on how we have to decide, we have to make the the decision. Um, so, tendency number one is to maximize our free will. Uh, the other side, the other the other uh, uh, perspective, is among Christians who like to uh, maximize God's will, where they give a lot of focus on how God God decides. God's the decider, uh, to paraphrase George uh, W. Bush. Uh, he decides, he makes his decree, he um, decides what's going to happen. He knew from before that he decided from the before the foundation of the world who would be saved, who would not, how things would go, how things would fall out. So a lot of emphasis on God decides and less tendency to talk about our free will. Um, and so both these options are like, there's extremes on both sides. And so no matter among Bible-believing Christians, there's a spectrum, you know, shifting between those two. But the two poles are they'll you'll tend to, to greater or lesser extent, to emphasize our free will, or you'll tend to greater or lesser extent to emphasize God the one, God is the one who's in charge. So, and those those spectrums can go all the way on one end, way off into crazy land, into what's called open theism, where the idea is God does not know the future. Um, so that takes the maximizing our free will thing way off, uh, not even into left field, but you know, into the, into the parking lot outside the stadium. God doesn't know the future. Uh, God is uh, leaves a whole range of possibilities open, and uh, he's not sure what's what's going to happen. Um, and the other ditch, way on the uh, right, on the you know, uh, out, out of right field, way off it, into the parking lot on that side is you know fatalism where the uh you know it, it almost is like it doesn't matter what we do because god's already decided so those are the two crazy ditches on either side of this divide but the question is this so this is the question when it comes to deciding what does providence mean and how does god govern things to turn out like he decided so this uh this is a good diagnostic question here it is does scripture show us a god who is psychic and can foresee the future 
you know, he, he can look, he can look down the quarters of time and he knows that, you know, on February 9, 2024, Tyler would be talking to a camera, you know, reteaching this, this class about Providence. Is God a psychic who just, who can foresee the future or is it, do we have a God who drives and controls creation itself? So that that's the question you need to ask when you look at scripture, when you read scripture, when you read your, your devotions, you do your Bible reading, and you see God interacting with his people through the Old and New Testaments, ask yourself, is this a God who is psychic and who can simply foresee the future, or is this the God who drives and controls creation and reality itself? That's a question. Uh, the answer is the second one. So now here's a definition of providence, and then we'll, after I give it, we'll look at a bunch of scripture passages and talk about it. Um, Thomas Watson, who I mentioned before, wrote that God is not like the artificer, artificer who builds a house and then leaves it, but like a pilot, he steers the ship of the whole creation. And that's really good. That's why I quoted it. Uh, God did not um, build a house and say, here you go, you can all move in now and then get in his truck and drive away. He built it and he walked. Uh, that's not that's not the God of the Bible. Instead, the God of the Bible, Watson says, is like a pilot who is steering, even now, he is steering the ship of the whole creation toward the port that he's designated uh, for the ship to dock at in Revelation 22. So he's actively steering. He's actively navigating. He's actively uh, uh, steering this ship toward where he wants it to go. That's what the Bible teaches us. So if you can you know, zoom out to like 50,000 feet and think about this, if God does not govern in direct creation, right? If there's no pilot at the helm, you know, if there's no conductor on the train, um, then all prophecy is a lie. That, that's what you got. Uh, prophecy isn't true. Wishful thinking, you know, it's like a placebo thing. It's not, it's not a real promise. Either God can control and govern and direct creation on this path, or prophecy is a lie. Those are your options. And that means if that's true, then that means there is no plan. God has no plan. He's not driving anything anywhere. Uh, so that means we can't be sure that Revelation 19 through 22 are even going to happen. You know, the great future, Satan defeated, uh, the false prophet cast into hell, the Antichrist cast into hell. Uh, we can't be sure that's going to happen. Um, but we do know it's going to happen because we have a God who controls creation, who guides it, who's in charge of it, who's above it and is steering it. Okay. So zooming out, just the the story of scripture, the story of reality um, gives us no choice but to see we have a God who doesn't, doesn't simply foresee what will happen, but who drives and controls reality itself. So here it is. Uh, there is no such thing as blind fate. God or blind, like serendipity. There was a uh, a bad movie with uh, starring John Cusack that came out like 20 years ago called Serendipity. Uh, has nothing to do with this. So there's no such thing as blind luck, right? Uh, God rules and governs as he sees fit. And so everything that happens, everything that happens is due to his royal decree or order for the world. God is driving the train. Either things are an accident with no purpose, or there is a purpose, and 
things are happening according to the will of God who's bigger, smarter, and uh, far above us. Those are your options. Uh, your spouse gets cancer. A loved one dies. Um, awful things happen to you. Difficult things happen to you. Difficult things happen to people you love. Either that is completely meaningless. There's no point to it. It's just, you know, stuff happens sort of thing. Or uh, God is in charge of what's happening and he has a purpose for it. He intends to bring good out of it or it's punishment for us because of dumb, the dumb things that we've done, right? We do stupid things. There are consequences. We learned that when we were little kids, hopefully. And now we're, we're adults. We do stupid things. There, there are consequences. Doesn't mean God doesn't love us, but it does mean that he uh, disciplines us like a good heavenly father should. Um, everything that happens is due to his royal decree or order for the world. So you have layers of an onion. You have a uh, the the bottom layer the, the the first cause the ultimate cause the London Second London Baptist Confession of Faith says the first cause is because God decided it would happen right that that's the bottom layer that we can't see that layer uh, often but it's that's that's why things happen um, but the second layer the the one we are better able to see uh, is this, these are all things that happen behind the, the divine curtain, so to speak. First order, first causes God decides. The second layer is that God uses means to do all these things. So he may be one, two, three, four, five, 20 times removed from the first cause. You have a whole bunch of domino things that, that roll out that result in the things that happen in my life, your life, our lives. So God determines what happens. And yet, moving to the the, the second important part of this definition people make their own intelligent and willing decisions we do what we want when we want because we want to right we, we do that um and we're going to look at scripture to make this real because it's sort of abstract now but scripture teaches us that god arranges and channels events through secondary causes right that's the the, the layer above the first cause of this onion channels and arranges events through secondary causes far removed from direct action you know god's not god's not you know immediately saying tyler go and start the recording and i say yes master and i go start the recording. so that that there's no direct cause but there's second third fourth fifth 20 times removed from god's first cause decree you have us doing things that we want to do when we want to do them because we want to do them but this whole chain of events and providential arranging and circumstances that made us who we are, that made us do what we want to do, that shaped us to be who we are. Uh, and there's a million things going on that result in us doing what we want to do. And behind it all, um, behind all the means God uses to achieve what he wants, we have God's first, first cause. But the point is, we do what we want. We do what we want. God operates in us and through us and in and through other people and a whole bunch of external circumstances. He channels our true desires, whether they're good or bad. He channels what we really want to do, whether it's good or bad. Um, he channels other people's real true desires, whether they're good or bad. And he channels all the circumstances swirling around in this messiness of life, whether they're good or bad, for his purposes and god god knows how to use bad instruments for good purposes 
God doesn't make us sin. We want to sin, so we sin. Um, Proverbs 16, uh, 9, um, John Calvin uh, uh, famously wrote in his, uh, in his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin uh, latched on to Proverbs 16, 19 to you know, crystallize uh, how God, uh, we do what we want, but yet what God wanted is what happens. And he latched on to this, this verse, Proverbs 16, 9. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. It doesn't mean we can understand that, and we'll we'll dive into some scripture in a second, but the 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 fact of it is is right there. It's very clear. In their hearts, humans plan their course. I I want to do something, I plot to do something, good or bad. You know, we have dreams, we have hopes, we have career ambitions, we have things we want to do, we have a house we want to buy, we have uh uh, college we want to send our kids to, you know, we have stuff we want to do. Um, and we, we plan our course and we lay it out, use our brains, the resources God has given us, but on, on a layer above that or below it, however you want to work the analogy, the Lord establishes our steps. And, and there it is. And John Calvin was right. It crystallizes it right there in one sentence, uh, which Solomon was really good at doing. So God governs his world in at least four different ways, and we'll get to the—I'll I'll read some scripture here to back up each of the four ways, but we're really going to get to scripture in a in a few minutes once I'm done laying out this framework here. God governs his world in at least four ways. Uh, number one, he permits things to happen, right? He just— he he just lets us go our own way and doesn't act to uh, to stop us, right? Uh, it's like when you have kids and you know they're making a mistake, and for you know variety of reasons, you're just like, eh, wait. okay, and you just you just let them you let them make the mistake so they can learn. Uh, God lets us make mistakes. He could stop us, but he he let he lets us go. He permits things to happen. He lets us go our own way sometimes, and doesn't act to. Um, to stop it. So uh, many people know the account in scripture of uh, Hezekiah inviting the envoys from Babylon, which was then not the big boy on the block in the um, uh, the, the Middle Eastern uh, region. Assyria was, but Babylon was sort of looming on the horizon. And uh, in uh, First Kings, Hezekiah invites them, uh, but First Kings doesn't explain the circumstances behind why he invited them to tour the city uh, shortly after he recovered from his illness. But in Second Chronicles chapter 30, verses 30 and 31, this is what it says, and this supports you know, he, that God just lets us go our own way sometimes. This is what it says. It was Hezekiah who blocked the upper outlet of uh, the Gihon Spring and channeled the water down to the west side of the city of David. He succeeded in everything he undertook, but when envoys were sent by the rulers of Babylon to ask him about the miraculous sign that had occurred in the land, God left him to test him and to know everything that was in his heart. So he let Hezekiah um, mess up, right? He 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 just let him go. He didn't, you know, hem him in, you know, through second, third, and fourth, you know fourth causes, you know, removed from direct action. He didn't steer Hezekiah to, no, 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 go, go, go this way. No, 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 no. This way. He just said, he just backed off and said, uh, I want to see what Hezekiah, I mean, he knew, but he's like, I'm going to, I want Hezekiah to see 
what happens when I just leave him to 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 make his own uh, to do what he wants. I'm just going to leave him. Just going to back off and let him go. Uh, God left him to test him and to know everything that was in his heart, right? And that's why First Kings doesn't have this information. Second uh, Chronicles uh, chapter uh, thirty, verses thirty and thirty-one does. Uh, God was testing him, and Hezekiah didn't do very well on that test. But Hezekiah is a uh, Hezekiah is a messed up person, just like you and I. Uh, and we mess up sometimes. He didn't do well here. But the point is, God lets us sometimes go our own way. Romans one twenty-four in the middle of this passage about the. Uh, uh, Paul's in this section from chapters Romans chapters one through three, where he's proving that uh, no matter who you are, you're you're sinful. And here in chapter one, he's talking about um, unbelievers. Others, unbelievers. Uh, there's proof that they're sinful. And in Romans one twenty four, he said uh, talking about sexual sin, about unbelievers and pagans and sexual sin in the, the world's culture. He says, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts, the sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And what that means is just what it says. He just, he just let them go. Um, he let them go after sexual perversion in all its forms and just let them, let's, let's, let's them destroy themselves. And don't we see that in culture today? God, there's a massive giving over um, of culture where God lets people go their own way. God, God's providence isn't just for believers. God is the ruler and creator of the world. God restrains evil all over this world. But in sometimes, in some places, he, he, he removes his foot from the brake, so to speak, and lets the car roll down the hill on its own inertia. And if God's not on the brake, it's going to start rolling pretty fast. Romans one twenty four says that God um, sometimes just backs off and lets us harm ourselves, destroy ourselves. And that's definitely what's happening in Western culture in 2024. But uh, the way God rules the world, way number one, he uh, sometimes permits things to happen and lets us go our own way. Way number two, he prevents things from happening, which is what I just mentioned before. He, he intervenes to stop us from being as dumb as we otherwise would be. Whether we're believers or not, he restrains the world, people, Christians and non-Christians, from being as evil as they could be. And the book of Hosea, chapters 1 through 2, there's this beautiful uh, allegory of uh, Hosea married to a very unfaithful woman who cheats on him and leaves him in every opportunity. And this is a lived you know, parable where God says to Hosea, your wife is like Israel and you are like me. I've done so much for my people and they cheat on me and they leave me. They forsake me. They don't care about me. They walk away from me. They lie to me. Just like your wife lies to you, cheats on you, leaves you, breaks your heart. It's a beautiful picture, beautiful parallel, a lived uh, parable uh, for Hosea and for us as we read it. Um, but in Hosea chapter two, this goes to how God stops us from being as evil as we otherwise would be. In uh, Hosea chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, when God is talking about um, Hosea's wife, how he'll he'll make it so she'll come back to Hosea. And, you know, if, in the analogy, God's people have wandered away from him and he's going to 
he's going to steer them back, not like an abusive husband, but as a, as a loving husband. He's going to arrange circumstances so his people will not find fulfillment where they're looking for, and they'll come back to him. So this is what it says in Hosea chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I'll wall her in so that she cannot find her way into the off into the the abyss of debauchery and sin and everything else. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She'll look for them, but not find them. And it goes on and says, and so she'll she'll come back to Hosea. She'll come back to you. And God is saying, I'm going to stop people from being as evil as they could be. So they keep trying to run after these other things, but they won't find satisfaction. They won't find them. They won't find satisfaction in them. And then they'll they'll turn around and say, maybe um, maybe the answer is somewhere else. Maybe the answer is in Jesus. Maybe the answer is in uh, uh, the message of the Christian story. So God stops us from being as bad as we otherwise could be even if we don't realize it at the time. David, uh, King David, in uh, Psalm 19, he prays for God to protect him from himself. You know, this idea of God stops us from being as bad as we could be. And David knows this, and that's the thing. Christians know that God is in charge, which is why they pray things like Psalm 19:13, when David says, asks God, keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless, innocent of great transgression. He's asking God, protect me from myself. What Christian can't see themselves in that prayer? Even if Christians don't want to, even if they don't think about it in this you know, intellectual way, Christians have this impulse given by the Holy Spirit if they're children, because they're two children of God, that uh, God has the ability to protect us from ourselves so way that god rules the world number two he prevents things from happening he stops us from being as bad as we uh, want to be uh, way number three he channels or overrules our bad intentions and we're going to cover this a lot in a few minutes so i'll just state this here uh, God overrules the things that we want to do and brings the bad things we want to do and brings out of them consequences which we did never intend but that he intended to come about we want to do stupid things and god channels those things for his own purposes and even brings good out of them in a way that we certainly never intended or even even knew about and we'll see that a lot in a, in a few minutes um he um the the fourth thing is that he restricts our wicked acts and desires he doesn't just um restrain us from doing evil things he control he can control the evil things that happen uh he can hem them in uh for example in the book of job in the first chapter when uh, satan is speaking to god and he he's um they're having a conversation and god says uh almost provoking satan you know have you considered my servant job he's a great guy he's a wonderful guy he's a righteous man and satan says well you know he's only he's only uh he only loves you because you give him so much you take it away he'll curse you to your face he's a loser and um in job chapter 1 verse 12 we read the lord said to satan very well then everything he has is in your power but on the man himself do not lay a finger 
the point of that is is that god can control even the wicked acts and desires of satan satan's only allowed to mess with job within the parameters that god has outlined god controls wicked acts and desires uh, absolutely controls them. So you have the layers of the onion thing. People do what they want to do. The king of Assyria, we're going to read in a little bit. The king of Babylon, we'll also read in a little bit. Do what they want to do to the people of Israel because they want to do it, and it's genuinely bad and evil, and they're held responsible for it because they want to do it, and they did it. But they're, they only do what God has allowed them to do. First uh, Corinthians ten thirteen, the Apostle Paul says, "No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind." God is faithful; He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. So think about that. Uh, God will not let you be tempted. So you're being tempted by something in your path, some memory, some uh, temptation that's there in front of you physical, mental, whatever whatever it could be. Uh, God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. What does that mean? It means he's in control of what of the thing that's coming at you. Even if the thing that's coming at you doesn't know that God's in control, God is in control of it. That's hard to think about, but that's what scripture tells us. So those are the four ways God governs the world. God's character is our guarantee that he does what's best. In a previous class, uh, we do the class once a month at our church. So I think I think October, November is when we did um, God's character, right? The attributes of God, to, to say it in a nerdy speak. Um, but because we know God's character, we know that the way he uses this power is good and that we can trust it, right? You have, say you have a friend, family member, someone you know, and you, you trust the person and you hear something about the person, the person, you know, uh, Sarah did this. Okay. And it might sound bad, but you react by saying, well, I, just, uh, I know Sarah and uh, there, there has to be a reason. There has to be more to this because I know Sarah and Sarah wouldn't do that for that reason, right? We do that with people all the time. We know people and we take their character. So when we hear something, we're like, yeah, there's more to it than that because Sarah wouldn't do that. And in infinitely, uh, in a similar but infinitely more serious degree, if we know God's character, we know that he does control things from first order and secondary causes, you know, even 20 times removed. And that means that what he does, what does happen, even if we, we don't get it, you know, we, we don't see it from our perspective, can't understand what's good uh, or what's advantageous about this. Because we know God's character, we, we Christians say, oh, there has to be a reason for this. There has to be a good reason for this. God's attributes um, teach us that he's both great and good. Great meaning big, big. Uh, God is big, infinitely bigger than us. Uh, he's spirit. He's not physical form. He has personality. He has life. He has life in himself. He dispenses life. He's infinite in every possible uh, way. He knows everything. He sees everything. Hears everything. You know, whatever category. And he's infinite, and he's constant. He never changes. You learn. I learn. We learn. Uh, God knows everything and always does. God doesn't learn. 
right? He's he's infinite. He's constant. He doesn't change. He's great, big, and he's good. He has moral purity. He has integrity. He has love. Those two categories, great and good, sum up who God is, what he's like. And um, because God is great and good, when we see what happens in the world, in a world that's fallen and that's not the way it was made originally, that's important to know that some non-Christians don't seem to realize this is the world God made. But because God is great and good, when things do happen to us in this world, we know that there must be a reason. It must be a good and holy reason because God is who he is. So on the face of it, so let's sum, sum this up before we go into the next section. On its face, without you know searching the scriptures, just, just laying it out like that, this might seem contradictory and kind of absurd. So a lot of people, uh, some Christian teachers like to become philosophical at this point. They'd like to talk about philosophical models to help us understand that. Um, I don't think that's the best way for to, to get this, to feel it uh, in your heart and in your mind. So we're not going to talk about philosophical models about how is this supposed to work. Um, it's a good question, but uh, it's not the question we're going to talk about here. Um, instead, we should look to the scripture and ask ourselves that bottom line question. Does the scripture show us, right? Does the scripture show us, A, a God who's psychic and can foresee the future, you know, down the corridors of time, or B, a God who drives and controls creation itself? That is the question to ask scripture. That's the question to ask scripture. And as we ask ourselves that, and as we look at some passages, then we'll be able to uh, see it in the scripture and maybe move toward trying to understand it. But we need to see what does scripture have to say about this. And remember, our perspective is like that of an infant in God's world. You have a little kid at home, infant, two-year-old, three-year-old. Uh, they don't understand why things happen. And they, I mean, they understand some things, but they don't get the bigger picture of why they have to take a nap, why they have to wait to eat because you have to drive home. They don't see that. They just want the thing, and they're angry and upset if the routine is broken or if it can't happen the way that they want because they don't see and they don't appreciate the wider realities at play here in the life of being a parent. Uh, and we are the same when it comes to why is God doing this? Um, if we really believe that God is great and all the things that, that I mentioned, all the attributes of God are true. He's infinite. He's constant. He's um, has life in himself. He gives us life. If we really believe that, then we need to realize there's a lot of questions we're never going to have the answers to. But we are like the two-year-old who doesn't understand the wider reality about why we have to can't eat until we get home. And that's hard for us to see because we like to think a lot of ourselves. We are the infants in God's world. That's the analogy. So remember that. And we come to scripture, we come to this question, we come to God with a humble heart. He's our heavenly father. We are his children. We don't know a lot, but we do know what he's revealed to us in scripture. And that's where we have to turn to ponder and consider this, um, this question. 
And so on that note, uh, I want to look at a bunch of passages. Uh, there's a lot uh, that I could look at. I'm going to look at, uh, I want to quickly go through four or five, and then I want to take a, a much longer look at um, a few of them. I think I will just do Isaiah chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50 is the, the famous one when it comes to this question, but Isaiah 10 and Genesis 50. We'll spend time going through those, but we'll rather quickly go through a few uh, right off the bat um, so we can see this from Scripture and it becomes something real that we can see that God is revealed instead of just this philosophical model floating around in the sky, not tethered to anything. So the passages we're going to look at, uh, this is the question to ask. How could God do what these passages say if he doesn't drive and control reality? Okay, um, and I don't I, I don't want us to focus so much on the explanation, but on the fact of the matter that God drives and controls reality, um, either through direct action or through secondary causes, you know, through means, you know, second, two, three, four, five, twenty times removed from direct action. Uh, how can God do these things we're going to read if he doesn't drive and control reality? That doesn't help us understand how it works, but it should help us to understand that it does work, that that is the way it is. So uh, the first one um, we're going to look at, um, Isaiah 45, verse 7. God has just talked about how he's going to use the Persian king Cyrus as his instrument to lead, uh, to make get his people back to the promised land. And uh, in this passage, in Isaiah 45, verse 7, God says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. What does that mean? What God is saying is, I can do this. I can use Cyrus. I can bring my people back to the land I promised to give. I can do all that stuff because I am who I am. I'm the one who I form and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. The people who are making money think they're the ones bringing prosperity, right? Um, the people who create the disaster, who conquer, uh, you know, whether it's actual disaster or more metaphorical you know, disaster in someone's life, uh, they think they're the ones causing it. But when you, you peel all the layers of the onion away, God says, I'm the one who determines what happens here in this world. It's, a, it's a, just a bald statement, and, and there it is. Um, what's it mean? Is this just poetry, or is, it, is there an actual statement here that means something? This means something, especially in the context and where, where it's said. Let's see. Um, yeah, um, 1 Samuel chapter 2, Eli's sons. Eli is a uh, high priest. Uh, his sons are no good. They're scoundrels. They're losers. Um, Eli um, doesn't do a very good job warning them, rebuking them, keeping them in line. These are adult men at this point. Um, and so finally, uh, toward the end, in I'll read 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 22 to 25. We, um, Eli rebukes them. He says, you know, I've, I've heard... Um, I've heard all this awful stuff that you're doing. Uh, you need to stop it. It's not good. And uh, this is the point. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse, uh, 
verse 25, we read uh, the end of verse 25, that uh, his sons didn't listen to him. Why not? Because they're horrible people. This is what it says. His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. What does that mean? Eli told them he was late, really late. Um, he tried to tell them at the end that they're being sinful. They need to stop. He's disappointed in them. And they didn't listen. They didn't listen because they didn't want to listen. But a layer below their conscious understanding, it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And that's why they didn't listen. You think they wanted to die? You could read the rest of the story and see. You think they wanted to die? So this is what I mean about we need to see this from Scripture rather than just doing if opposition X and doing all sorts of philosophical models. Uh, that means something. They heard. They listened. They said, forget it, Dad. Uh, whatever. And that was their decision. But why did they make the decision? Because it was the Lord's will to put them to death. God, didn't, God had decided that they would not listen. But yet they literally did not want to listen. See that? I mean, it's of course it's a conundrum, but that's why the layers of the onion thing are true. First cause, bottom layer of the onion, below the surface, God decided they weren't going to listen. Secondary cause, they didn't listen because they didn't want to listen. They're horrible people. They're scoundrels. They're losers. So there it is again. Um, let's see. Uh, Esther. Esther. Um, Think of all the things that had to happen to make Esther the queen of Persia. Hey, here, uh, when the Babylonians destroyed uh, the southern kingdom of Judah in uh, 591, uh, 580, no, 586 BC, they were a vassal state for a decade or two before then. So 586 BC, temples destroyed, all of the, all of the the aristocracy, the elites, the the wealthier people, all hold off by the Babylonians, uh, Daniel among them, all hold off to Babylon, and uh, the whole exile happens. They're off in Babylon. Uh, the Babylonian the Babylonian kingdom falls to the Medo-Persians, um, and eventually you have a whole generations of, uh, you know, like three generations of Jewish people who are raised and live and uh, live and die in uh, Babylon, now under the Persian Empire whole community and uh esther is one of them esther and her uh her um esther and mordecai are one of them part of this huge diaspora scattered abroad uh, in in persia and all the circumstances that have to come about for her to be uh married to the king of persia at that particular time in that particular place when that particular wicked man haman is the de facto is the prime minister of Persia and tries to execute genocide upon the Jewish people. Um, is that an accident? Or is that God providentially moving pieces into place to ensure that his people are protected from a genocide that could have wiped them out? So that's worth thinking about. And her... Um, I keep to be honest, I keep getting confused with the Veggie Tales version of Esther. I can't, I can't, I know in Veggie Tales, Mordecai is her cousin, but somehow I keep thinking he's her uncle. I believe it's her uncle. Um, so I blame Veggie Tales for my confusion. But anyway, uh, Mordecai um, tells her 
something, which is a famous, um, a famous statement of his. He's trying to convince her to go speak to the king on behalf of the, the people uh, against whom this uh, genocidal edict Haman's just, just released. And she doesn't want to do it. Uh, she's very, she's fearful, understandably. You know, she doesn't want to uh, put herself out there like that. She'd rather just stay quiet. And Mordecai uh, tells her, he says, you know, don't, don't think that, uh, you know, you're going to escape. You're Jewish too. I mean, this concerns you. So this is, this is serious. And in Esther chapter 4, verse 14, he says, if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. See how confident Mordecai is? He trusts God's providence. God is in control of this world. Haman can do what he wants, and he's going to be punished for it now and later. Uh, but he has confidence that God will rescue his people because God's the one who's in charge, no matter what Haman wants to do and does. God is the one who's in charge. So the relief and deliver, deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So that's what he says. And the only reason he says that is because he believes God's, God is driving the train. Who knows? Maybe you were put here. Maybe God put you here for just this exact time. He doesn't say, you're going to do it because God put you here and you have no choice. He says, because he, she has personal agency. That's the thing that we, we have trouble putting together. He's tr begging her to take advantage of the position in which God has put her. Who knows but that you, you, you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Providence. Mordecai believed it. And we see that in the whole story of Esther and God's rescue of the Jewish people from this potential genocide that Haman had orchestrated out of jealousy and envy. Um, jump over to the Gospels. Uh, Epiphany, this is February 9th. Uh, Epiphany was uh, almost six weeks, five, six, yeah, five, six weeks ago. Epiphany, the, the wise men, uh, the Magi come from the East. Uh, providence again. The wise men come bearing gifts, very expensive gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, extremely expensive. They could, the gold can obviously be used for currency. Frankincense and myrrh can be sold, expensive perfume, ointment, medicinal purposes. Um, and so what happened? This is important. What happened shortly after the Magi left? An angel warned Marian, warned Joseph in a dream to take the child and to flee because Herod wants the child dead. So how is this poor family going to flee and flee with, with no warning, with no resources? They're poor. What resources do they have to fund their trip to where they're going and to help them to live in the meantime? He has no money. He has no bank account. He has no Venmo. What, what is he supposed to, what do they have to sell? What do they have to live on? What do they have to fund their trip? Uh, miraculously, providentially, they have gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which was just given to them by these magi whom God specifically directed there all the way from the east. They have resources now that they can use to fund their trip and their stay, their sojourn elsewhere in Egypt. 
for this period of time. Is that just a coincidence or is God driving the train of history? The Bible doesn't say they used it for that. I'm assuming. I think it's a pretty good assumption. Um, I'd use it I, if, if I had to leave in the middle of the night somewhere and I had these these resources that had just been given to me the night before. Yeah, I would take them and use them. Um, so that's worth thinking about. Um, Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. What does that mean? Cast lots, throw dice, you know, the analogy there. Um, So you can throw all the dice you want, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That doesn't mean if you gamble, it's God's decision if you win or not. He's just taking a common thing and trying to say that uh, God's the one who decides. God's the one who decides. Uh, Let's see. Um, Okay, one one more, and then we'll move to the the, the scripture itself. The Jesus and Judah, uh, Judas paradox. Um, Judas betrays Jesus because he wanted to, right? He wanted to. He wanted to betray Jesus. He went to the chief priest. He went to the, the, the Sanhedrin. He secured a sum of money, got his 30 pieces of silver, planned the thing, and did it. He wanted to do it, and he did it. And yet, so this is the thing, and yet, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, and Acts chapter 4, verse 23 and following, we read that all this happened because God decided it would happen. But that doesn't mean that Judas was an innocent little lamb who was you know, God led him against him. I don't want to betray Jesus, but God's making me. So that that's not what happened. He wanted to do it, right? He wanted to do it. And Jesus even assigned him personal responsibility, right? In Mark 14, 21, in Mark's account of the, the Last Supper, Jesus says, the Son of Man will go just as it's written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. So think about that. The Son of Man. So he's talking about himself. Uh, it's gonna. Everything's gonna happen to me just like it was written. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. Well, if it's been written, then how can it be the guy's fault? But it is the guy's fault. There's the conundrum. Judas wanted to do it and he did it. But the only reason he did it is because God decided beforehand that the Son of Man would be betrayed. But you're making a mistake if you either say, that means Judas isn't responsible. That means I'm not responsible for what I do because God decided. You're also making a mistake if you go to the other side and say, Judas is responsible. God is not, has nothing to do with this. Both of those, you're, you're, you're taking a partial truth and you're maximizing it and shoving everything else off the table. Judas wanted to do it. He did it. He's held responsible. Jesus even says, woe to that guy. Sucks to be you. That's the Tyler translation. Judas is responsible. But God decided it would happen. First cause, second cause. Ultimate cause, God decided it would happen. Secondary cause, Judas wanted to betray Jesus for money. And he did it. Both are true. To focus on one at the expense of the other and shove the other off the table is a terrible error. But millions of Christians throughout all time have have made that error. 
Uh, I'll read Acts chapter, uh, either the one from chapter 2 or chapter 4. I'll, I'll decide right now. Acts 2.23, so just so you can see the, the divine part in, in all this. Um, yeah, so the Apostle Peter is preaching, and in Acts 2.23, he tells the crowd of Jewish pilgrims there at, uh, at uh, Pentecost, this man, Jesus, this man was handed over to you by, God, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. He didn't say with the help of innocent men who had no choice, whom God was controlling like a puppeteer. He said, you, with the help of wicked men, you did this. That's a moral judgment with wicked men. But the only reason it happened is because he was handed over by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. There was foreknowledge because there was a deliberate plan. So there it is. There's both. And if you try and smooth things out by ditching God's part or ditching man's part, you're making a mistake. So those are some more rapid-fire verses. Um, but now I want to look at, um, uh, or at least going to do Isaiah 10. I may give up uh, and uh, forget Genesis 50. But uh, I want us to see a passage, right? And these this will this will be on the screen as we as we go through it. Uh, Isaiah chapter 10. Uh, Isaiah 9 is a famous passage um, where God is asking. God asks, um, uh, I can't think right now. God asks uh, Ahaz. Um, Ahaz is a is a real, it's a real loser. It's the king of Judah. The famous prophecy about the, the young woman, the virgin who would conceive is in Isaiah chapter 7 as God is trying to speak to Ahaz. to says, ask for anything you like as a sign. Uh, and I'll be with you. I will help you through this as the uh, northern kingdom and the Syrians are invading and ganging up on the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, we know Ahaz with false, you know, false piety says, oh, no, I, I could never ask for anything. God gives his famous prophecy uh, in chapter 7 going on into chapter 8. Chapter Isaiah chapter 9, the famous promise of the child that's going to be born, the son that's going to be given, the government will be on his shoulders. Christmas, Christmas, uh, used at Christmas all the time, appropriately, really good stuff. Um, so, But in Isaiah chapter 10, uh, at the end of chapter 9, God is saying, um, he's criticizing the people in Judah, talks about they're unfaithful, they don't love him. He says, wickedness burns like a fire. You know, this, this, they're so wicked. It's like this, this uh, roiling, like kindle, kindling thing going on in the underbrush that just flares up all the time. You know, people of Israel are wicked, so much wickedness, um, very awful. Um, and he says, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something about this, right? I'm going to, I'm going to punish the people of Israel. So now remember, direct action, right? Uh, and then secondary action god decides and then downstream two three four five twenty thirty times removed you have action done by the real honest good or bad intentions and actions of real people all the way down the line like like a bunch of dominoes uh god says i'm going to punish i'm going to punish my uh, my people uh, i'm going to do that um he's so isaiah chapter 10 starting in verse 5 he says how he's going to do that. He says, woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger. So instead of like God wielding, you know, his own rod in his hand, 
Assyria will be the rod that he wields in this analogy. So the, he's going to use the Assyrian Empire. So pay attention. Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. So the Assyrians are doing his will against his own people of, of Israel because of their sin and wickedness. I will say I send him, Assyria, against a godless nation. I dispatch him against a people who anger me, saying, I'm going to send Assyria against my people. They're godless. They don't love me. Uh, they anger me, right? So I'm going to send the Assyrians. Uh, they're going to seize loot and snatch plunder and trample them down like mud in the streets. The Assyrians will come and uh, conquer a huge stretch of uh, the territory in Judah. This long campaign. And it's to punish Israel. So they turn to God. You know, it's like when you're in, in a very dark place, when your God is is judging you. God is punishing you. God is letting you feel the consequences of your own mistakes, your own sin. And, you know, the, the stereotypical thing where you're like, you come to the end of yourself and you realize you need to fix some things and you turn to God. If, if you might have been gone for a long time, but you return to him. That's what God is using Assyria to accomplish. So he's going to do all these awful things, you know, uh, seize, loot, snatch, plunder, trample the Israelites down like mud in the streets. But verse 7, but that is not what he intends. That's not what the Assyrians intend. They're not, they're not on some moral you know, crusade saying, I'm off to punish the Israelites because God wants me to. Uh, they, they just they see a chance to snatch more territory and uh, get more money and extort the nation of Judah uh, with a lot of money. Uh, give us money, pay us tributor, we'll destroy everything. That's what they're thinking, right? That's why this is not what he intends. He doesn't think he's being used by God. It's not what he has in mind. His purpose, the end of verse 7, his purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. That's what they're doing. So we have the layers of the onion. They're doing what they want to do. But underneath the first cause, they're doing what God wants them to do. But they don't know that. They don't know that God is the one who's channeling channeling they're not puppets he's channeling and directing their honestly bad desires for his purpose verses eight and nine um verses eight through eleven uh isaiah quotes what the assyrians think this is their attitude this is what they boast are not my commanders all kings he says and he lists all these other places who whom they've destroyed and whom they've conquered and you know judas just like them uh, they'll fall just like anyone else. Uh, we're amazing people. We're we're unstoppable. Very arrogant. Very self-assured. Verse ten: As my hand sees the kingdoms of the idols, kingdoms whose images exceed excel those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not deal with Jerusalem and her images, as I dealt with Samaria, the northern kingdom, and her idols? So Isaiah comes back in verse twelve. And he says, when the Lord has finished all his work, when the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria. But why? Right? Because he's just doing what God wants him to, right? In the simple, you know, stereotypical straw man explanation. How could he punish Assyria? I mean, Assyria is doing what, what God wanted him to do. 
there's the that's the problem they wanted to do it god they want to do it for different reasons i will punish the king of assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes so that's the conundrum and it, it's laid out really clearly in this passage of we do what we want to do because we want to do it and we do it and we're held personally responsible god holds us morally responsible for what we do and yet the first cause two three four twenty fifty uh times removed is god has decided what happens but that doesn't mean we're not responsible and you see that in this passage i'm not saying we have to understand it i'm saying the fact of what i'm saying is clear in this passage assyria is it's its desire god channels assyria's bad evil desires to punish the people of judah because that's what god wants to do but assyria is still responsible because they don't know god's using them they have their own agenda and god will punish them for it because they honestly want to do it and they do it they don't even know that they're being used by god so i i hope you can see this right this isn't just an abstract philosophical model for how you can understand god with a bunch of equations um you know if you have a proposition p and x happens that so th this is very real very personal and you can see that in isaiah chapter 10. Uh, i will do genesis uh, genesis chapter 50 and genesis chapter 45. um in um so uh most i hope you know the story of, of joseph if you're if you're a christian joseph um is one of jacob's uh 12 sons he is uh sold into slavery by his brothers in a moment of real awful sin and wickedness uh, through a whole bunch of horrible circumstances providential circumstances uh he becomes the essentially the the prime minister of egypt uh, years years later he um he's in a position to rescue his family the nucleus of the nation of, of israel uh from a horrible famine that god brought on the world which then brought the people to seek refuge in egypt where they could buy grain and food uh and joseph was providentially in a position as the prime minister of egypt to help his family and preserve his people in egypt through the famine and beyond uh, and then god rescued them out of there through moses and the book of exodus but uh obviously that causes some hard feelings since his brothers sold him into slavery when he sees them again and now he's the one in a position of immense power his brothers are fear that he's going to kill them um and joseph's had a lot of time to be very bitter so um it's not looking good for the brothers uh but in genesis 45 verses 4 and 5 they're understandably very um uh, very upset um about this uh especially you'll see in a minute especially when their father eventually dies uh and now they're really convinced that he's been like biding his time and waiting to kill them as soon as his father dies but but in genesis 45 uh, his father's still alive but but we read this um um joseph's um brothers uh when he reveals himself they're terrified they're speechless joseph just wants to know is my is my father still alive his, 
his brothers weren't able to answer him because they're terrified. So in Genesis chapter 45, verses 4 and 5, we read, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they did so, when they'd done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. So do you see that? They sold him into slavery, did a terribly evil thing. But Joseph, uh, with the passage of time, he's now able to say, listen, God was behind all of that. He put me here so that I could save you today, now. So he sees the hidden hand guiding, piloting the ship toward a particular port that he had selected. That's important. It's not simply that they're evil and terrible people because they did that, nor is it simply that God decided it so they had no choice but to do it so they're not responsible. Joseph says, you did sell me here, but going a layer below that, it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. So in Genesis chapter 50, we see, um, we see something else. We see him say something similar. In Genesis chapter 50, uh, now that his father's died, his brothers, you know, they've sort of secretly had this in the back of their mind that he's just waiting for dad to go. And they just going to kill us all. He's, he couldn't do it when dad was alive. But now that dad's gone, we're toast. We're toast. Uh, but in Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20, um, I'll start in verse 18. Um, his brothers then came. And threw themselves down before him right after their father died. We are your slaves, they said, begging. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. So that's important. They, they intended to harm him. They wanted to harm. They wanted him dead. You intended to harm me. That's one layer. That's there. That's our layer our intentions, our desires, our actions. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God intended their evil actions for good. So that's the layer below. There are the two layers again. They did what they wanted. It was bad. It was evil. It was sinful. They intended to harm him, but God intended it their actions for good. God had channeled their actions, intended their actions for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid, Joseph says, and then he goes on. So you see it right there. Now, we might wish that we can have a, a, a you know, um, a blog article where God explains how this is supposed to work, but it's enough to say that this is how it is. Right? That is how it is. That's how God governs and runs this world. That's providence. Why does this matter? This is the last, the last section. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that we know how God governs and rules the world? Why is it important that we know that we do what we want, good or bad, um, when we want, because we want to, but that above it all, or below it all, depending on how you want to use the layer analogy. Uh, God determines what happens. 
Why is it important that we know that? And I'm going to read an excerpt from the, the 1618 Belgic Confession to explain, which is one of the resources I mentioned at the beginning. And this is what it says, um, the excerpt from Article 13 of the Belgic Confession. His power and goodness, it, it says, are so great and incomprehensible that he orders and executes his work in the most excellent and just manner, even when the devil and wicked men act unjustly. That's very deep. Wicked, the devil and wicked men do awful things, but God intends those things for his purposes. So God is at work, even, even when the devil and wicked men do what they want to do. We don't know exactly how that works, except to say that it does work. We accept his will. We accept God's will. Even if we don't understand it, we know it's good because we know God's character. He's great and he's good. We acknowledge we don't understand, we can't understand, might not ever understand. We know we don't have the full story because we're the children. He's the father. And we accept that. The Belgic Confession goes on. This doctrine affords us unspeakable consolation. So this is comforting. It's comforting to know that this is the case. Why? Since we are taught thereby that nothing can befall us by chance, but by the direction of our most gracious and heavenly Father. That's comforting. We have a heavenly Father who is in charge of this world. When you're a little kid, it's comforting to know that your mom and or dad are there and they'll take care of things. When you're five years old, you don't know about all the other stuff. You just know that mom is there, dad is there, food will be there, hopefully. You know, there, there, there's someone to take care of you and that comforts you. They're going to take care of you. They'll protect you, right? They protect you. That's comforting. In an infinitely greater degree, our heavenly father has the power and authority and ability to protect us in this mad world. Nothing can befall us by chance, it reads, but by the direction of our most gracious and heavenly Father. He watches over us, he cares about us, he loves us, and no matter what happens, it's not a situation that's out of his control. You either have a God who controls and directs reality, or you have a God who sits there and says, ah, that really sucks, I'm, I'm going to fix that, I'm going to fix that. Um, it's, uh, I'll, I'll hold on. Which one, which God does scripture show us? When very small children see their parents scared, angry, upset, they become upset too. Why? Because it scares them when they see, because they trust their parents. When their parents are obviously losing control, that means their world is out of control and they're very scared. We trust our parents to protect us and control our environment and watch out for us. We instinctively do that when we're kids because we know that mom and mom and dad are mom and dad and we're little. Christians need to remember we're the little kids. And God is a heavenly father who will protect us. He doesn't get angry and lose control, but the analogy fits. Uh, our heavenly father watches over us to continue, watches over us with a paternal care, a loving parental care, keeping all creatures so under his power that not a hair of our head, for they are all numbered, Jesus says, nor a sparrow, Jesus says, can fall to the ground without the will of our Father, in whom we do entirely trust. So will we trust God? Do we have a God whom we can trust to control and pilot this ship 
on the course that he set? Or is there no one at the helm? And are we going to crash into an iceberg at two in the morning, like the Titanic? Which one is it? That's the question. What does scripture show us? It shows us we have someone who's at the helm, who is not going to crash into an iceberg because he's at the helm. So we can trust him. Being persuaded, last part, uh, that he so restrains the devil and all our enemies that without his will and permission, they cannot hurt us. Can God keep Satan at bay? We read about Job, or is God fighting an equal? Is this is, is Satan a peer competitor? To use a you know a, a military national security term, is, is Satan a peer competitor for God, or is God actually in charge? Is the outcome in doubt, or do we have a God who is in control of this world? Because he made it, even made Satan. Which one is it? Which one is it? That's why the doctrine of providence is important. How does God rule and control this world that he's made? Is he steering it toward a destiny? Is Revelation 22 real? Is it going to happen? Will there be a time where we're in a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation, where Genesis 1 and 2, the bliss of Genesis 1 and 2, is recreated forever this time in Revelation 22? Is that ever going to happen? Or is it just an aspiration like i would love to retire to here one day maybe it'll happen maybe it won't but it's a dream is revelation 22 a dream or is it a promise that we can bank on who is the god of scripture do we trust the prophecies true do we trust that the prophecy yet to be fulfilled is actually gonna happen the revelation 22 really will happen that the tree of life will be there for the nations to to to, to eat from so which God does scripture show us? And if it shows us a God who directs and controls the creation he made, that means everything for how we live our life, what we think, how we think, and how we trust him in the midst of sometimes very, very bad situations. I hope, I hope the class has been helpful. I hope you look at those resources. Look at Thomas Watson. Look at uh, chapter five from the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Look at uh, the 1618 Belgic Confession, Article 13. Read them. And then as you read the scripture today, tomorrow, throughout this year, see the God that's revealed there and take comfort in knowing he's the God who directs and controls creation, steers it along the path toward the port in Revelation 22 that he's chosen.